Our reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And while they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they said still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body... They came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Mrs. Hauser. Mrs. Hauser was my third grade teacher, and all of us to a kid loved Mrs. Hauser. She was fun, she was nice, she had these really bright eyes and this big smile and the perfect 
permed hair. I mean, it was the early 80s, and her hair was so tightly permed and this bright, cheerful smile. We loved seeing Mrs. Hauser every single day. And she was a really good teacher, too, on top of that. In the spring of my third grade year, Mrs. Hauser came in very solemn and somber and sad-looking, and she got the class's attention at the very beginning of the class, and she said, uh, kids, I have a really sad announcement. This is the, my last week here at Louise Archer. I won't be your teacher after Friday anymore. Immediately, this room full of eight-year-olds cried out, gasped, no. Kids started crying, sobbing, tears just pouring down faces. Not mine. I mean, I was, I was cool about it. I understood what was going on. These things happen. People move on. It's no big deal. Mrs. Hauser, seeing the response of the kids, seemed a little aghast herself, and she cried out with her cheerful smile and bright eyes, April Fools! <laughs> she had to repeat it time and again the whole day. We didn't actually believe her anymore. We weren't sure, is she going, is she not? Which one's the April Fools? Look, I get the irony of Easter landing on April Fool's Day. April Fool's is the day when you trick people you love, like little third graders. You lie for fun. You produce fake news at somebody else's expense. And many people would say, this is what Easter is, isn't it? Isn't it just an April Fool's joke? Because at its root, the resurrection defies logic. If you're a thinker, you know the resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot be proven scientifically by strict scientific method. Now, I would submit to you, neither can romantic love. Do you know what science, scientists say that love is? Your experience of love is actually just a series of neurochemical reactions that were developed over eons of evolution in order to enable you to connect to somebody and survive the species. In other words, your love of spouse or romantic love or of your kids is not real. It, too, is just a myth. So maybe we need to look beyond just strict methodology. But, you know, here's the deal. People come at the resurrection with one of a couple of different options. It's myth, it's metaphor, or it's more. The myth idea is the one I just said, which is basically what academics and skeptics have said all along, which is the resurrection of Jesus is just a legend that arose centuries later when the church was trying to kind of uphold its position in power. We've claimed Jesus is God, therefore let's make up stories about him rising from the dead. This is essentially what novelist Dan Brown put out in his Da Vinci Code, which has been debunked, just so you know. It's a novel. But that's the basic idea. It's just legend that came up centuries later. Most Americans don't really buy into that, well, let's say it's just all a load of, you know, whatever. They would say something nicer, like, it's a good metaphor. I love Easter, I love the resurrection, because it's, it's all about things being born anew, like the freshness of flowers and leaves, and the Easter kind of narrative is a powerful story of rising, like a phoenix, and it gives us hope to overcome 
when we're dealing with adversity. Christianity pushes that, and it has since the beginning. From day one, Christianity was built on this absurd claim. The resurrection is much, much more than myth or metaphor because it is real. From the beginning, Christianity has claimed Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. But can that really be true? Is it plausible? And what does it mean if it is? First, I'm gonna suggest the resurrection is credible. I think it's actually credible. You might not buy into it, but it is at least credible. It's credible on a couple of different levels. It is historically reliable from the accounts that we have about it. So the way that history was done in the ancient world was actually derived almost exclusively from eyewitness account. There are numerous histories that are, that are written that are why we understand the Greek and the Roman empires as well as we do, and the ancient historians relied almost entirely on eyewitness account. Richard Baucom in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, records how history was done back then, which is different than how it's done today. And he cites something that's unique in the Gospels that's actually also included in other reliable histories. It's the use of names of side characters. So names that were included in our account today are Joanna and Cleopas, or Cleopas. Now you don't know Joanna and Cleopas if you read the Bible because there's nothing else written about them. Joanna is mentioned in Luke 8, 3 as just one of the other women, and Cleopas, Cleopas is never mentioned again. This has all the markings, according to historians, of an eyewitness account. Putting those names in is actually like a footnote. It's a source reference. Luke, the gospel writer, knew and talked to somebody named Joanna and Cleopas. And the readers of Luke's gospel could go and find Joanna and Cleopas. Other side characters aren't mentioned. This is the way history was done. On top of that, you have the historical reliability of the embarrassing parts of the whole gospel account. So opponents rose up against Christianity in the second and third century. One of them named Cassius, who was a particularly vehement opponent of Christianity, declared a few things that are completely embarrassing in the passion narrative and resurrection narrative that prove that it could not have been true according to a second century person. One is in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying, Father, take this cup from me. Cassius, in his writing against Christianity in the second century, says, if you are going to have a king, a messiah, why is, he, why is he praying, take this cup from me, if he came to die? He doesn't show the courage that a true leader should. Secondly, if he's truly the messiah, Cassius says, why do all of his followers betray him and abandon him? If, if they really thought he was the Messiah, the Son of God, shouldn't they have fought for him? That's what anyone would have done. And thirdly, if he did actually rise from the dead, Cassius writes, he should have appeared to Pontius Pilate or King Herod or the high priests, the powerful, the status people, not to a bunch of peasants and women. And the women issue is a big problem because every one of the gospel accounts records that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection are women. Jewish law suggested that women were not to be used in courts of law because their testimony was not trustworthy. Cassius, an opponent, says, see, the first people to see the resurrection were women. And he actually says, 
hysterical women. You can't trust them. The only reason Luke or Matthew or Mark or John include Jesus praying, take this cup from me, or the disciples abandoning him, or appearing to women as the first eyewitnesses, is because that's actually what happened. And they didn't feel they were at liberty, liberty to change the story to match their sensibilities. It is historically reliable, the accounts, as historically reliable as any account in ancient history of the ancient world. I think even more convincing than that is actually the followers' reactions. How many of you have ever heard of the religion, the religion of Barcokeism? Barcokeism. Know any Barcokebites out there? Any friends that are Barcokebites? I mean, this is a culture that has a lot of different religions. So Barcokeba, Simon Barcokeba, was a messianic figure, just like Jesus. About 100 years later, he led a revolt, overthrew the Romans, and established a messianic kingdom in Israel for three years. And then the Romans came in, killed him, squashed his powerful little group, and guess what? There's no Bar Kokhbism anymore. Nobody's a Bar Kokhbite. He was way more successful as a Messiah. There were many other Messianic figures, all of whom died, and all of whom after they died, their movements ended. But here we have the disciples, completely afraid, scared to death, but within a century, the Roman Empire is starting to quaver is the gospel of Jesus Christ is moving forward because these disciples went from absolute terror and fear and betrayal to boldness. And nearly all of them were martyred by horrible deaths. And what did they proclaim? Why did they face deaths? Because they believed Jesus is alive. Not because they had a dead Messiah in the past that might have been nice. They believed he was alive and they could face even the lion's den. Shusaku Endu, a Japanese novelist, wrote, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you are forced to believe that what hit, not his, what hit the disciples was some other amazing event different in kind, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. Something happened to these early disciples that caused them to believe Jesus was risen bodily, physically, for real, and it changed the entire course of human history. The resurrection is credible because the gospels are historically reliable and it is making the most plausible sense of what happened afterwards. Now look, this doesn't mean you have to believe in Jesus Christ or even believe in the resurrection. But if you disbelieve, don't base your disbelief on bad evidence. Disbelieve because you just don't believe. The resurrection though is at least historically credible and plausible. Second, the resurrection is terrifying. Here's a question. Why doesn't anyone who sees Jesus in these early accounts get it? Why can't they see Jesus? The women go to the empty tomb with their spices. The tomb is empty, and they are perplexed about this. They were perplexed about this. In other words, it doesn't make sense. They don't go there, the tomb's empty, and they're like, oh, just like he said, he was gonna rise from the dead. Hey, let's go back and tell everyone he rose from the dead. They're 
perplexed. This doesn't match their categories or expectations. The women go back and tell the disciples hiding in the upper room. And the disciples, of course, like the men that they were, said these words seem to them, verse 11, an idle tale. And they did not believe. Why didn't one of them say, didn't he say something about this? Then on the road to Emmaus, two of them who were there when the women came back are walking seven miles to Emmaus. They're like, let's get out of here before we get arrested. And as they're walking along, looking all sullen, Jesus walks up with them. But, according to verse 16, their eyes were kept from seeing him. Even though he's walking along with them and he starts explaining the entire scriptures to them, how from Genesis all the way through, all of it was pointing to him as the Messiah and how he would come as God's son He would die for the sins of humanity and he would rise again on the third day. And as he's explaining all of the scriptures, their ears are burning, but they cannot see until finally they get to this room in Emmaus and he breaks some bread, reenacting the Last Supper, performing the first Lord's Supper, if you will, and they're like, aha, we get it now. All of a sudden they can see. They run back to Jerusalem They tell the disciples who are hiding in the upper room, we've seen Jesus. They say, Peter's seen Jesus too. All of a sudden, Jesus appears, and we didn't read this part. Jesus appears in the room with all of them, including Peter, the women, the two guys from Emmaus. And yet, verse 41 says, and they still disbelieved. How come they can see him physically, literally, but can't see him, see him, him, you know, or see, see him? they do not have a category for what has happened. We assume these ancients were rubes, not like us sophisticated modern Westerners. They did not have a category for what they were experiencing. It'd be like if I grabbed one of the second graders on their way back in and said, hey, can you run out to my car and get my eight track of Kenny Rogers? They would have no idea what I'm talking about. What's an eight track and who's a Kenny Rogers? In fact, probably many in here have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) The category doesn't exist. On top of that, they have their own agenda. All the disciples are looking for a They were looking for the Messiah, Jesus, to conquer the Romans, establish a kingdom, and they would rule with him. They were looking for a war, and they assumed they would be victorious in the war. The disciples in verse 21 said, we had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. He did redeem Israel, but not in the way that their agenda was assuming he would. They had no category. They had their own agenda, And they had assumptions. Their assumptions were like our assumptions. Dead people do not rise. Jesus was dead dead. Not half dead. Dead dead. They had seen him crucified, his body laid in the tomb. You know, the women go with spices to the tomb on that early morning. Why do they do that? They go to embalm a dead body. They don't go saying, well, let's bring the spices in case he's not risen from the dead. That way we don't have to go back and get the spices. They saw him dead. They saw him buried. He's dead. They're going to take care of a body. They're looking for a body. Dead people don't rise. 
They're lacking the category because their assumptions and agenda get in the way. It's the same reason. It's the same reason why many of us can't see Jesus, can't see see Jesus. We have assumptions. Like the assumption about if there is a God, that he must be an accepting grandfather type God, which conveniently matches our culture's kind of view of how things go. Or the assumption that all religions are basically the same. They all kind of get you to the same place, which on one level is actually just laziness. Go and examine the religions, compare them, do that. You'll narrow them down pretty quickly. It's also convenient to say all religions are basically the same because it means that whatever I'm into, whatever I'm already doing, eventually it'll get me there. I don't have to be challenged. I don't have to change my way. I don't have to assume I'm wrong. If all religions are basically the same, then whatever one I've come up with, it'll be okay too. We start with our own assumptions. We don't want to see Jesus for who he is. And this is also because we have our own agenda. How many of you, you don't, don't raise your hand, okay, but how many of you, I'm, I'm putting my hand up, but don't. How many of you have plans for this afternoon, for Easter afternoon? And even if you don't have plans, how many of you have at least thought about the fact that you don't have plans this afternoon? Anybody in here who's over the age of 18 who has given zero thought to what you're doing this afternoon? Probably not. We are the sort of people with plans, especially here in the D.C. area. We have priorities and desires. We have an agenda for not only our day, but our life. And we are in control. We have a direction for our lives and how it is supposed to go. These assumptions and our basic agenda affect our approach to Jesus. Most of us assume something like this. If we actually come to church or start looking for Jesus a little bit more, we assume we've got bad directions in life. Our compass is off, and we just need some redirection. And so, you know, if we go to Jesus, start going to church, start praying, maybe I'll read the Bible or one of those little, you know, Jesus calling devotionals, that'll help get me back on track, reorient me. Christianity makes the claim that you do not need redirection, you need resurrection. You're dead. It's more like this. Imagine yourself driving along a road, an empty road, out in the middle of nowhere, and on the side of the road up there, you see a guy. As you get closer, you realize it's Jesus. And you're like, oh, dude needs a ride. You stop, you roll down the window. Hey, Jesus, hop in. I'll give you a ride anywhere. No charge. This is your Uber. Where, where do you want to go? I'll be your limo driver. But Jesus doesn't get in. He's still looking at you. You realize, oh, he actually doesn't want to sit in the back seat. He wants to ride shotgun. You're like, hey, that's cool. Jesus riding shotgun with me, he could help give directions. And you know, hey, Jesus, I tell you what, when you're riding shotgun with me, there's a couple of rules, which is you get to control the radio and the air conditioning. It's all you, buddy. What do you want to play? And here's where I'm going. Can you help me to get there? But Jesus still doesn't get in the car. And you realize he's waiting for you to get out of the car. That he wants to get in behind the driver's seat and you in the back. You have a decision to make. Do you give the keys to him or not? We want Jesus. 
as our co-pilot. We don't want him as our driver. We don't really want Jesus to be risen. It's not only inconvenient, it's terrifying. The resurrection is terrifying because it declares, think about it, if it actually happened, then this guy is who he claimed to be, the Lord, the God. And if he's the Lord, then I can't be. And that's terrifying. The resurrection is credible. It is terrifying. And lastly, the resurrection is more than meh. A lot of people think the resurrection and Easter is kind of a meh. It's not as good as Christmas. I mean, the presents, candy, the eggs are kind of silly, Santa Claus is much better. Kind of get on through with the whole thing. Meh. It's a good metaphor. It's fine to inspire hope when you're down but basically it's not much to be excited about. But if Jesus did rise bodily, if he is Lord and God, it impacts everything about who we are and how we live. The disciples saw this. They were given a new entire purpose and calling that exceeded this life and gave them hope into eternity. If Jesus rose bodily from the grave, then you do not need to be terrified of suffering or failure or loss or even your own death. If Jesus is risen, there is a hope of new, real life one day forever. And that is hopeful if you're in the middle of suffering. Joni Erickson Tata, who was paralyzed from the neck down, she's a quadriplegic, since she was a teenager, now decades later, she said, I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection, the real resurrection, gives to someone who is spinal cord injured like me? If the resurrection is real, you do not need to live the perfect life. Here's what I mean. I think all of us put so much weight on our careers, our relationships, our experiences in life. Maybe not in every part of it, but in some aspect of life, you were trying to have the perfect job or the perfect marriage or the perfect kids or the perfect vacation or the perfect sex or the perfect meal or the perfect friend circle, or the perfect house. Why? Because deep down in, we're afraid that this life is all that there is. We've got to get it now. But not only won't you probably ever get the perfect whatever, but even if you do for a moment, it will not last long enough to keep you satisfied. But do you know what the resurrection assures us? that one day you will have the perfect everything. Total joy, absolute peace, complete elation, total love, perfect relationships, 
maybe not the perfect body. We'll figure that one out. And what you thought worth killing for in this life ends up being a mud puddle compared to a beach. As C.S. Lewis put it, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We make this life ultimate when it is designed only to be penultimate. We're like the jerk at a wedding who is knocking everyone over to get every pig in a blanket from the appetizer trays. Because we have no idea that a full course banquet is awaiting. You don't need to fight for the pigs in a blanket. And yet, the resurrection also deepens and enhances enjoyment because it says every good thing in this life is a signpost, an appetizer of what is to come. The best things now, the best food, the best marriage, the best vacation is simply a glimpse. So enjoy them and cause them and let them cause you to rejoice even more. That that great night's sleep, that fun laughter, that enjoyable book is a foretaste of an eternity of joys that far outweighs anything this life has to offer. The resurrection is credible, it's terrifying, and it is more than math. So now what? Well, look at what Jesus says in verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Jesus wants each of us to respond to him personally. So take a closer look at him yourself. How? Well, if you give more money to this church, then Jesus will like you. <laughs> you try it. <laughs> Go look for yourself. Open the Gospels. Read a book like Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. Participate in an alpha course, like one that's coming up in April at the Mosaic. Seek him on your own. Figure out if he really does exist. If he really did rise from the dead. I mean, of course, you don't have to do that. You could also just ignore all this. You went to Easter church, check. Your family members are happy, check. And quite frankly, look, if he did not rise from the dead, okay. Move along, folks. Nothing to see here. Why is everyone getting worked up? But in the chance that he did, that he did actually rise from the dead. If Jesus is alive, if he is Lord and God, well, that's terrifying. It's probably better not to go there. Let's pray. God, it is not easy to believe. It's why it is a resurrection each time. Our hearts, our minds don't see, and we want to see. Give us eyes to see in the scriptures opened, 
and the bread broken and your words to us as you walk with us. May we know that life that is the resurrection life now and the hope and assurance of the life to come. Amen.